Okay, so Advent season, as um, I think it was Mark that mentioned, when did that start? It actually started last Sunday, um, but this season between last Sunday and Christmas is, is about a growing anticipation for the Lord to come and deliver, and that's exactly what the incarnation was. It was the Lord coming to deliver us from the penalty and the power of sin. It was also the beginning of the end. So one day, Jesus, well, over here, <laughs> one day, Jesus is going to come and deliver us again fully and finally. Set everything to rights. Everything's going to be made new. So Advent season, even though the Lord has already come and we need to rehearse that and celebrate it, we also can be longing for and cultivating our longing for His second coming. So we live in the middle between those two comings, right? And we, in the middle, are regularly in need of deliverance. We needed it. That's why Jesus came. We need it. This world is broken, and Jesus will come. But there's lots of little deliverances and big deliverances that are needed in between. We regularly need the Lord to come and deliver us from temptation, from our selfishness and our pride, from our unbelief, from our fears, from our anxieties, from our overwhelming circumstances. I mean, these things are regular, so we need him regularly to deliver, to come and deliver. So I hope that over the next few weeks, our Lord, as he meets with us, will do a few specific things, among others, is show us how desperately we need him to continually come and deliver us, Show us how willing he is to do that. So I think we need to be bolstered in our confidence that he's willing and able to do it. And then taking those things and actually being trained. That the Lord would train us to look to him, to look to him, to look to him, to come and deliver us. So we're not so good at this. We are so spring-loaded to self-reliance. We also are prone to downplay our need. And we also tend to doubt his willingness to come and help us. So we need practice. We need to be trained in the art of desperate dependence. So as it turns out, the next five chapters in Isaiah, 36 to 40, that's what we're going to be covering over the next this week and the next two, they're all about teaching and training us to live by faith, to live like this. Look to him, look to him, look to him. So this week it's come and deliver because of this crazy military threat that came upon Judah that we're going to read about here in a minute that we read about already um, in 2 Kings. Next week, Hezekiah is sick to the point where he's going to die. How about that? A health threat and death looming. Come and deliver. And the Lord delivers him. And then chapter 40, he prophesies the, the coming of the king to deliver. And John the Baptist, the voice crying to get us ready for his coming. So I think it'll be really appropriate at this time of year. It's appropriate all the time, but certainly here at the Advent season. So we come now in the book of Isaiah, and we've been going through this for a while here, 
we come now to a pivotal, literally a pivotal section in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 35 say a lot of things, but it speaks a lot about how the Lord is going to judge the nations and save his people, those who trust in him. And sadly, first, his own people had rebelled against him, so they needed to be judged and woken up so that they could be saved. And then the second half also is 40 to 66, and this section, 36 to 39, is like a hinge. So in the face of the threats of their time, it was really hard to believe that One, the Lord's going to judge the nations. Oh, peace, peace, we're all good. And then also that the Lord could save them from the threats that were around them. They were looking everywhere but to the Lord. They were relying on everyone and everything else, but they weren't relying on Him. So in the middle of the book of Isaiah, there is this, the book is almost completely poetic language. It's it's verse. If you look in your Bible, you see that. And then all of a sudden, there's this narrative right in the middle. Chapters 36 to 39, like history, written that way. And it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, and it acts like this hinge. The book turns on this hinge. The whole point is, the question is, can God really save? Is he trustworthy? And this story, these stories of 36 to 39 answer with a resounding yes. Like, here's historical proof. Here's the theater. God's going to display his trustworthiness, not just in propositions, Not just in words through the prophets, but actual history, the way that he delivers. That's what he's going to do. So all those statements about the Lord and his trustworthiness are made concrete and visible in how he comes and delivers his people in the time of Hezekiah. And this is not just ho-hum narrative here. Okay, If you've never read this section, I I want to let the text speak as much as possible. Yes, we're going to read through two chapters. Oh, like that's not that much, okay? Okay. But go home and and read this thing in one sitting, start to finish. You just want to stand up and cheer by the end. This is like cinematic. It's like reading the David and Goliath story. It's like Lord of the Rings, only better because it really happened. Lord of the Rings is just an echo of this epic story. Okay, so for those of you Lord of the Rings nerds out there, this is like Minas Tirith, okay, with the... Forces of Mordor bearing down on the city. Why do we love Lord of the Rings? Because it's an echo of this kind of deliverance that we long for. So, remember that background from the scripture reading, 2 Kings 18. And we're going to walk through the passage here. There's five points. They're on the inside of your bulletin. um, And you can follow along that way. Here we go, chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that's right where we left off in 2 Kings 18, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, just like in Lord of the Rings at Minas Tirith. (laughs) Capture the, the outer defenses, right? Pressing in on the capital city. That's what's happening. Sorry, if you don't know Lord of the Rings, sorry. I mean, you can kind of get the idea anyway. Um, But shame on you, you should go read the books. They're great. Um, Okay, so he's pressing in on the capital city. The king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, some military leader, PR, trash-talking spokesman guy, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And we might just blow right past that little detail. 
But if you've been tracking through Isaiah, do you remember Alex preached on this a while ago? Alex Kirk. Flip back to Isaiah 7.9. Actually, flip back to 7.3. Who's Hezekiah's dad? Ahaz, previous king. And Ahaz was also facing the threat of the Assyrians. And in verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to Ahaz, you and your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint because of these threats. He's basically saying, Trust me, I will deliver you. The Lord is saying that to Ahaz. And then he says in verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And what did Ahaz do? He was not firm in faith. He buckled under the pressure, shrunk back in unbelief, and failed the test of faith. So here's the same language. 34 years later, Hezekiah's father had stood at the same spot and failed. And now, same place, same crisis, same threat, different response. And we're supposed to see that and learn from it. So, verse 3, there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. These are the representatives from Judah to come out and listen to what this Rabshakeh guy is going to say. <coughs> Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, and Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Your words versus my army. In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Remember back in 2 Kings 18 that he stopped paying tribute. That's rebelling. I'm not going to be your, you know, little puppet king. Which was actually the right thing to do. But now he's going to pay for it here, apparently. So, in whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Do you have some power up your sleeve that you're going to be able to handle us now that we come at you? This is actually the question of this section. It's actually the question, like the question on the human end of the book of Isaiah. God saves is the point of Isaiah. The question is, will we trust him too? Verse 6, behold, you are trusting in Egypt. Remember, they were doing that. They had buckled and compromised and tried to make an alliance with Egypt and the Rabshakeh calls him out on it. The Lord had, had warned them in the same way. That broken reed of a staff. Go ahead and lean on that thing. You'll get impaled. A lot of help Egypt will be for you. Will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, notice that the word trust is used a few times might want to underline those. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? See how he's interpreting Hezekiah's action to tear down all the, the uh, idolatrous things? He, he thinks it's all the same thing. But again, he's trying to unsettle the people. So here's this military threat. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to run to? Who are you going to look to to come to your aid? And here's this story. This is so cool that God's made all these promises 
made all these statements about what he's like, and this story is going to be proof positive that the Lord doesn't just want us to know in our heads that he's trustworthy in the abstract, in theory, merely in propositions. He wants to show us. He wants to give us experience of his saving power and faithfulness. He wants to prove himself to us. So, Ortland says it like this. He wants us to experience what it's like for him to come through when the only thing that will suffice is what is directly and immediately of God. He wants us to be living proof that he is real as we dare to treat him as the greatest ally in the universe. So, they don't know all the answers. They don't know how this is all going to turn out, but they can know who they're trusting. They can know who their Savior is and who to run to. And that's the same challenge before us as well. Verse 8, come now, make a wager. This is the Rabshakeh speaking still. Come on, let's go. Let's, uh, let's bet on this. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you were actually able on your part to set riders on them. He's taunting them. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? If you need to go to them, how are you going to repel us? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Is that true? Well, guess what? Ironically, it is and the irony is going to be on his head pretty soon. But he thinks he's just toying and manipulating and, and bullying them. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said, see, he's saying that to undermine faith. God's setting it up to bolster faith. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, I mean, I mean, this is like, seriously, this is like the suburban nerds meet the inner city bully. Okay. Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of I'm sorry, I'm in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall, because they'll get upset. Well, that's the whole point of me coming here, talking this way. So the Rabshakeh responds, Oh, has my servant or has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? These were not idle threats. The Assyrians were ruthless. I, I literally just listened to some history stuff on the Assyrians. They literally would make the ISIS somewhat tame in comparison. I mean, I won't even give you some of the gory details of some of the stuff they did to their enemies. It's horrific. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king. The king of Assyria, in case that's in doubt. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. 
Don't you want to survive? Don't you want to thrive? Don't listen to Hezekiah. Listen to me. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. I mean, whose voice is this guy speaking with? It's a forked tongue, little hint. Listen how he goes on. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered, out, delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? I mean, they had just conquered so many lands already. They've got a big track record. A lot of weight behind these words. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad, the gods of Sevariam? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Nobody was able to stop us. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord, whoever he is, should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But these representatives of Judah were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then these three guys, Eliakim, Shebna, Joah, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. So there's some serious weight behind these words. The Syrians really were really scary. Verses 4 to 7 really are the key here. That's what is at issue Look back at verse 4. <coughs> you see the trust language repeated. On what do you rest this trust of yours? In whom do you now trust? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt. If you say we trust in the Lord our God. This is a trust issue. To whom will Hezekiah and the people of Judah look? And at this point, you know what? There's nowhere else for them to go to turn but to God, which means this is God's way of setting up setting the stage for him to show his trustworthiness and his ability to save. But you know what? The heat's on. And the question is, are mere words strategy and power for war? I mean, again, this is satanic kind of logic. This guy's just a master at undermining faith and sowing doubt. He uses half-truths and lies, and he manipulates with the best of him best of them. Ortland says it this way, here is human skepticism throwing down the gauntlet before believers in God. There are always arguments against living by faith in God. Do you, I mean, this, is, this can be very contemporary. Do you ever catch mocking or belittling challenges from family members or coworkers? Are you looking to religion? Like, seriously? The opium of the masses? Crutch. It's wishful thinking. It's like, like buying guardian angels. Like the people that buy that kitsch. Is that your, that's who you are? It's a bunch of superstitious, superstitious wishful thinking for the weak. That kind of stuff can take its toll, can it? We can cower. Or we can kind of fight back in a very unchristlike way. Do you notice how the Rapshika pointed their attention to the failure of the gods in the face of the Assyrian threat? Yeah, all these cities we left burning in ruins, they all had their gods too. So you want to trust your God? How'd that go for them? Are you seriously relying on your God? I mean, have you ever caught anything similar to that? Maybe connected to the problem of evil and suffering? So you're a Christian. How did that go for so-and-so? 
Maybe it's a relative who was a Christian and died of cancer or who suffered horribly, and they use that as ammunition or proof, supposedly, that, you know, your belief must be empty. doesn't seem like your God is listening. doesn't seem like He cares. So, I mean, there's threats to faith all over the place, and there are situations that make trusting in God seem very implausible and impractical. So, let me see if this touches any of you. So, lately, with, with let's say, the, the ISIS stuff, the terrorist threats, what happened in Paris, what happened in San Bernardino, are any... Are any of you now starting to think about concealed carry? Okay, I'm not going to make a judgment on that. I'm more so just wondering about what's going on in your heart. Are you thinking more about situational awareness? You know what that phrase, little buzzword? You know, whenever you go into Starbucks or a restaurant, you make sure you, you can see the entrance and the exits, and you have to position yourself in such a way. Situational awareness. And maybe that can be a good idea. In in the face of some of these threats, does Isaiah 41.10 seem impractical? Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. doesn't mean we don't lock our doors. I'm just saying, what's going on in here? And where do you run? Where do you look when the threats come? What about if you actually lived in the Middle East and ISIS was threatening your region? Do you see how threats put a lot of pressure and heat on us? And we can look everywhere but to God. So you have anxiety issues. (laughs) What can God do for you? I mean, he obviously hasn't helped me yet. And so you... You listen, and you start to rely more on science or a pill or a technique, or a, and you make a compromise because trusting in God with those anxieties seems so implausible. So, Second point, in whom do we now trust? In whom do you now trust? Look back at verse, verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Make peace with me. Come out. We'll set you up. Everything will be great. It can all be over so quickly quickly and painlessly. All you have to do is give in. Just bow to the great king. You'll have your own. It was an empty threat. I mean, with the Medes and the Persians, they actually were a little kinder, and they actually, this might have been a real promise. But with the Assyrians, they were vicious. They they weren't going to do this. This is a lie. It can all be over so quickly. You'll have your own land and peace and security. That's exactly what Jesus did with, I'm sorry, what Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness. You're hungry. If you're the son of God, boy, the way the father cares for his son, you could just turn these stones into bread. Here, bow to me, and I'll give you all this. You can avoid all the suffering, and you can, all the kingdoms will be yours. It's a strategy in the garden, strategy in the wilderness, and it's a strategy with us. He does the same with us. The battle is raging for our faith. 
Who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to trust? Who are we going to look to to come to our aid for survival, to bring us peace and prosperity in the truest, ultimate sense? Satan and his false gods have their promises. So what do you do under threat? Dire, imminent threat. Do you tend to kind of work the angles and manipulate, look for some leverage, pull some strings? Or do you freak out, stress out, anxiety, panic attacks, scramble to find an answer on the internet because of this pain in my wherever? Brood and spin and obsess over all the what-ifs? Well, what if there's another path that the sovereign king of the universe wanted to show you? when you're under threat, wanted to walk you down, wanted to walk with you along that path because he wants to come and deliver, because he wants to prove to you his trustworthiness. Well, Hezekiah's response shows us that path. He basically cries out, come and deliver. This is point number three. Look at chapter 37. Very instructive for us. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, I mean, you can imagine how that sentence could be finished in our day and age. Some of the things you might run to. He tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. Yes! That's where the answers are to be found. And we don't just mean in church, although this is a good place to meet with the Lord and be in his presence. This is prayer for us, dependence on God. What happened the last time somebody went into the, the house of the Lord in Isaiah? Chapter 6. And Isaiah had his eyes open to reality, his own sin and need, God's greatness. Oh, my word, I'm undone. And atonement. Yes, atonement. And then when God said, who am I going to send? He goes, I'm ready. So here Hezekiah goes to the right place. He goes to the Lord. He went into the house of the Lord and he sent Eliakim, it's another good sign, who was over the household and Shebna the secretary, the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah. If you've been with us, do you know what they were saying to Isaiah prior to this? Go away, prophet. Shut up, prophet. We're tired. No, now they're saying, we need a word from the Lord. So he sends these guys to Isaiah and they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress. Of course it is. Look at this. Look at this admission of guilt and fault. He doesn't just say all the problem is out there. He says, we have caused these problems. We brought them on ourselves. This is a day of rebuke. It's a day of disgrace. It's our fault. We had it coming. No excuses. Children, he uses a metaphor here, children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. Ortland summarizes it well like this. He says, in other words, we admit it. We've failed. We are not living proof of the reality of God. We've produced, children, we've produced nothing but exhaustion. We must be delivered, but we have no strength to do it ourselves. End quote. Verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God, look at how he says at first, your Hezekiah with a word for Isaiah. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh whom, the master, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. Wow. Hezekiah is concerned about the glory of God. 
That's good. It may be that the Lord will hear and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. This is so encouraging that they screwed up. It's their fault that this happened. Do you think he should have stripped the temple and given all that stuff to the Assyrian king to kind of pay him off? No. And he comes to the Lord honestly, honest about his sin. And for us, how often do our failures keep us from coming to the Lord under when we're in trial and stress? Because we think, I screwed up again. He probably doesn't even want to hear from me. No, you go and, I need you to come and deliver. I brought this on myself. Isn't that encouraging that when you bring the threat on yourself, you can still go to the Lord and ask him to come and deliver? And he's willing to do so. So, again, this is a great point for us. Our fears, our compromises get us in tight binds and the threats that come are our fault and still God can save. So we need to follow. We need to learn to follow Hezekiah down this path of faith. God wants to come and deliver even us people that bring mess and threats on our own heads. So Hezekiah responds the same way, come and deliver, down in verse 14 to 20. Look at that. Just skim down from verse 4 to verse 14. Hezekiah, this is a kind of a second part of the dialogue. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up. Again, he goes up to the house of the Lord, and he spreads it before the Lord under another threat from the Assyrians. Both times he goes to the house of the Lord. It's in God's presence that the answers are found. And here's how he prays. This is so instructive. Listen to how Hezekiah prayed. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Hearkening back to chapter 6, King of kings. Who's the great king? You're the great king. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. I can't argue with what he said. But they were no gods. They were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Do you hear him confessing his faith in prayer? It's almost like I'm confessing my faith as I pray. Help me believe this. I believe it. Help my unbelief. So now, O Lord, our God, do you see how it changes from your to our? His faith is is growing, it seems. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. That all, why? So that we can be comfortable again and safe. No, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. This is really instructive and it's really encouraging. He's focused on the character of God. You're the king. You're the great king. He's concerned about the glory of God. Why is God going to hear his his prayer? Why is he going to be inclined to answer? Because Hezekiah is saying, your name's on the line here. Show everyone who the real king is, please. He's been honest already in the way that he talked to, sent the guys to Isaiah about the sin of the people, his own sin, the message that he sent to Isaiah. He confesses clearly that all other gods are false. 
He's trusting in the one and only true and living God. So remember that taunt that the Rabshakeh made back in 36.5? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Well, the words of threat from Assyria came with some serious weight. These guys were vicious and brutal, and they were coming, and there's just no way that Jerusalem can withstand them. But the Lord's word, his words are infinitely more weighty. See, in the midst of trial, do you you know how, how important this is? What usually happens? The reason we freak out and we're anxious and fearful is because the threat, what the threat is saying, all the what ifs and oh no, is really, really, really big. And the promises of God to us seem really small. And what we need is we need to get into God's presence. And the size of things needs to shift according to reality. Mere words Do you know who you're dealing with here? You're dealing with the one whose mere words made the worlds. So his promises are not weightless trifles in our trials. This story is here to help us believe that. So, so often the lies of the devil, the threats that loom over us look like tanks and atomic bombs that are about to blow up our life. And the words of the Lord seems like it's a peace shooter. I say at 4110. I can't do No, it's the other way around. That's the fight of faith. And this story is here to help us believe that. So look at verse 5, 37.5. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, here comes some heavy words. Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear some mere words. Hear a rumor and return to his own land and I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. So the Lord always gets the last word. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna for he had heard that the king had left. He heard, he heard some words, some mere words. So skip down to verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you've prayed to me, you've looked to me, you've trusted me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. This is a new, stronger word that's spoken that drowns out the threats. Quote, she despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. What in the world is that all about? It's confusing, it's kind of weird but it's actually a really beautiful picture. Here's the point. It's as if the Lord comes to deliver his people. Jerusalem is like a city, or it is a city. It's like a, it's she. It's like the Lord comes behind, and here comes the threat. And all of a sudden, because of who's behind her, She can despise that threat. She can scorn it rather than cower. The virgin daughter of Zion, amazing statement in light of her spiritual adultery. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. The picture is this rapist or would-be assailant 
And the Lord comes in his omnipotence and that, that assailant has to slink away in fear because he cannot handle who's standing behind Zion. So then she taunts him as he departs in defeat. <laughs> it's kind of like David and Goliath. Who's this battle actually between? So look at verse 23. Whom have you mocked and reviled? God speaking. You mess with my people, you mess with me. Against whom have you raised your voice? He's speaking to, to Sennacherib. They're not going to get this message, but this is to bolster the faith of his people. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice? Against me, the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you've mocked the Lord, and you've said with your God complex, with my many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I've cut down all these peoples. I've done all this stuff. I've done, I've done, I've done all this. And God interrupts that and says, have you not heard that I determined this long ago? Now Yahweh's going to trash talk the Assyrians. I plan from days of old. You're a tool in my hand. What now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field, tender grass. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in. You're raging against me. I'm going to put my hook in your nose. They used to do that with enemies, literally hook them in the nose and drag them back and show their home base how they conquered the nations. I'll turn you back on the way by which you came, and this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. See, they couldn't produce crops like normally because they're hunkered down inside the city wall. But the Lord's going to provide for them because he's coming to deliver. This year, you shall eat what grows of itself. Second year, what springs from that. Third year, sow and reap. Peace. I'm going to deal with the threats. Plant vineyards, eat their fruit, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. I'm going to deliver you. And you know what? I'm going to do it with all my heart and soul. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Just like with Jesus. Zeal consumed him as he was doing this saving work for us. So this promise, verse 33, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. Can you imagine how hard that would be to believe? How's that going to happen? By the way he came, he's going to return. He shall not come into the city. I'm going to defend the city to save it for my own sake for the sake of my servant David. So mere words, omnipotent words. We need to feel the weight behind God's words. His words are powerful words. They have omnipotence behind them. Is God trustworthy? Can he save? This story is living proof. The theater is history. So there's some ironic proof in this passage. How did the Lord toy with that greatest military threat? A little rumor, like I said, few words, mere words. The battle turns... And the same thing happens in our lives. It gets played and replayed, big and small ways. The theater is our lives. The Lord of hosts is the greatest ally in the universe. What are mere horses and chariots and money and fill in the blank? What are they going to do for you? God is the greatest ally and deliverer. So the funny thing is we could actually turn this thing around. 
and Ortland does it well. He says, if, if that is who God is, we can turn the Rabshakeh's question right around. Do you think that mere human empowerment without God is a realistic strategy for the challenge of life? Isn't that great? That's where faith leads us. And then let's look finally at how the Lord saves. Point five, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down three Lincoln financial fields worth. 185,000 in the camp of the Syrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, he already won the battle. All the dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home, lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. Isn't this interesting? After all that trash talking, Hezekiah went in to pray to the real God. He's totally helpless, and he gets delivered. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers die overnight, and the city's protected. Sennacherib goes in to worship his God, and his sons strike him down. Some good his God did him. So, the Lord saves. <laughs> the Lord saves. Okay. So ultimate threat. We're going to participate in the table now. Ultimate, th- ultimate threat here, folks. Sin, death, judgment. <laughs> what are you going to appeal to on your deathbed? The, the only thing that can deal with our sin, the only thing that can deal with the greatest threat, God's judgment, is God. The cross, the blood of Jesus. He's dealt with our greatest threat. That's what we get. We get a tangible reminder right here. They had that battle. We have the cross. Proof positive. And we get to celebrate it and remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to deliver in the theater of history on the cross. Yes. He did it before. He can do it again. He delivered when he came to deliver. He's coming man, valley of tears, this is a struggle, but he's coming back, he's going to fully deliver us. And in between, we need delivered and delivered and delivered and delivered. Just really quickly here. Look back at 37, 31 to 35. Do you see how these, this deliverance comes based on the promises to David. For I will defend the cities, verse 35, to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God's promises to David are functioning in a substitutionary way. Listen to Barry Webb. The Lord will defend the city for his own sake and for the sake of David, his servant. For all Hezekiah's piety, the plans of God do not revolve around him, but around God himself and his servant. Hezekiah is saved not for his own sake, but for the sake of another. As the book moves on, of course, David will be dwarfed by a far greater servant of God. Jesus came to deliver. Jesus came, and he continues to deliver. That's why we celebrate the table. So if the guys that are going to serve, if you could come on up here as we prepare our hearts. If our biggest problem has been taken care of, this table is testimony, it's, it's calling us to see the size and the weight and the strength of God's words so that the threats start to get shrunk down to size. If our biggest problems have been taken care of, what can man do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? So we pray, 
come and deliver. Okay, so we were lost and broken in sin, and if you have recognized that, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you're welcome to participate in this table and celebrate that deliverance. Yes, he's going to come and deliver the incarnation. Trust me, historical proof positive. Our trials and trouble, are you going to come again and deliver me from this trial? Yes, trust me, I'll never leave you or forsake you. We live in this valley of tears. This world is a battlefield for our, for our faith. Are you going to come and deliver? Yes, trust me, that's what this table is telling us. Let me just give a final illustration here. Barry in prayer meeting. Barry turned 72 yesterday. So happy birthday, Barry. And he asked at prayer meeting, he's asked this many times in the past, why doesn't Jesus come back? Barry is praying, he's longing for Jesus to come back and come and deliver. And he wants his new body, that's right. And the Lord's answer is, yes, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. We need to keep coming to him like Hezekiah in a thousand ordinary threats so that we're ready when the extraordinary threats come. So you see, Barry is this picture of we live in this valley of tears. He has been delivered. That's why he's looking to the Lord. He can't wait to be fully delivered. And so he keeps coming in the meantime. And that's why he's such a powerful testimony to all of us. So that's what this table is calling us to do right now. It's a tangible reminder. He has come to deliver. He will continue to deliver. And one day we'll be fully and finally delivered. So let's pray and we'll participate in the table together. Oh, thank you, Father, that this is the kind of God you are. You are a God who saves. Help us to believe it with all of our heart. And I pray that the cross would be the historical sign and proof that we can keep coming and you will keep delivering until the day when you come and fully deliver us. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.